This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan. And I really am grateful to have a place to talk about this stuff, to talk about big ideas, to talk about important stuff, important ideas, all these big things, faith, politics. It it really matters in our culture. It's about how we live well together. These are the conversations that we're having. It is an honor for TPNR, our program, to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And before we start, I have a few huge favor to ask. You, you know, follow, subscribe, depending on what your app asks you to do. Um, but if you haven't given us a rating, I, if you have, I mean, I would hope it's five stars if we've earned it, of course. But it would be great if if you if you haven't, like, give us a rating. Uh, you know, if, if you're if you're digging what we do, it really does make a difference. And even more importantly, write a review. Different apps, it it works differently. Like some, you can only leave stars and others, you can actually write some comments and stuff. But if you take the time to do that, um, it it really, really does help. Uh, If you've already done it, say on Apple, maybe go over to Spotify or Pocket Cast or Podcast Addict and do it again. It it really does make a difference. Um, You know, we're starting to get a bunch of downloads and it's really, really encouraging. Uh, but the one thing we need is to get more reviews and that's the way we get ranked and noticed by the big apps like apple spotify and others um it all helps get the word out so more people can participate in these conversations i can keep doing this this crazy uh thing and exploring ways that we can talk about politics and religion without killing each other and it's conversations like the one we're having today with dr russell moore Dr. Russell Moore. Uh, Russell Moore is editor-in-chief of Christianity Today and is the author of the forthcoming book, Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. Dr. Moore served previously as president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and before that, as the chief academic officer and dean of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he also taught theology and ethics. Uh, Dr. Moore was a fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics and currently serves on the board of Beckett Law. Is that how we say it? Beckett Law? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, Beckett Law. And Beckett Law exists to defend the free exercise of all faiths. I love this. From Anglican to Zoroastrian. <laughs> <laughs> he also hosts the weekly podcast, The Russell Moore Show, and is co-host of Christianity Today's weekly news and analyt- analysis podcast, The Bulletin. And certainly not least among his role as his husband to Maria, dad of five sons and Bible teacher. I love this Bible teacher at their congregation, Emmanuel Church. Uh, so, Dr. Moore, it's so good to see you again. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Oh, doing great. Thanks for having me. I've been yeah. looking forward to the conversation. You bet. You know, I, I don't mean to start on a um, sweet sorrow type of a note, but I, I was just catching up on some of your latest stuff. And you talk so much about your your pooch, Waylon, and I saw he passed yeah. away. You guys doing OK? Yeah, he, uh, our, our dog that we've had for 10 years, uh, a little dachshund, uh, but he's kind of been a part of our kids' lives at every step, uh, died. Actually, we were out of town uh, oh. on vacation. So it's uh, it's a sad time every time we see his water bowl and, you know, the things we have to put away. He really was a, a good dog and a part of our lives. Yeah. You know, I, when I saw it, one of the first things that came to mind, I know that um, C.S. Lewis has been a big part of your life and your, you know, formative thinking. Uh, yeah. Did you ever, do you remember he made, I think it was in um, the problem of pain. He makes this case for the possibility that dogs go to heaven. <laughs> so yes, are you a, a dogs go that. to heaven guy or no? <laughs> um, I, I am completely agnostic on that and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy to be surprised in a good way. <laughs> mm. You can run for office someday. That's a great answer. <laughs> oh man! But I, I was thinking of you because I, I've listened to a few of your um, uh, the a few of your interviews over the last few months, and Wayland comes up so much. So, so my condolences to you and the family. Well, thank you. There's a song uh, that I've been listening to uh, a lot called um, "Someday You're Gonna Leave Me." Uh, and it talks about her dog being there with her. And he said, and there's a line that says something along the lines of, 
uh, you always liked me. Uh, that means more than love sometimes. Mm. And, you know, that uh, I think that's what a lot of us uh, feel with our dogs. Man, so, you know, <laughs> I wasn't going to go down this road, but um, you, you've talked about depression as well. In fact, uh, in, in your uh, a recent conversation you had on a podcast, your, your own Desert Island bookshelf, it came up depression as a hungering dark. And uh, yeah. if, if I'm being completely candid, I've, I've had, you know, um, some some struggles myself uh, in, in recent weeks and months. Um, and I have these two dogs. What I've tried to explain to folks is that um, if I can it, the, the, if I can get my feet on the floor at the beginning of a day, um, it, it's a good start to kind of getting through that. Yeah. Um, and uh, having my dogs, they, they almost forced me to get my, yeah. to take that first step. You know, that's right. That's right. And so. there were times when in my life uh, there would be all kinds of chaos going on uh, and I could come home and know Waylon isn't asking any question about Donald Trump. Uh, Waylon <laughs> isn't uh, worried about any sort of controversy about whatever. Uh, he's just you know, glad you're home. And, and that really does, uh, really does. I, I think it does force, force you into a good routine when you, maybe when you wouldn't ordinarily be there. Yeah. You know, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but, you know, since it's, since we, uh, you know, came up, when I first, I was um, a pretty new Christian, maybe four or five years after I first became a Christian, first grappling with the possibility of this uh, depression, I was ultimately diagnosed manic depressive. Um, but I went to this church that we're in Santa Cruz Valley, where Masters University is, and John MacArthur mm -hmm. has a very big presence theologically, culturally. Um, and the first response I got was a very MacArthur, MacArthurian uh, response, which is, yeah. you don't have a depression issue, you have a sin issue, which right. really just exacerbated the whole thing. Um, but I, I was curious how, what kind of toolbox you've developed over your life to combat these seasons, uh, the, or whether they're episodes or longer seasons. Well, there have been uh, there have been seasons that were uh, actual depression, but uh, the more challenging ones were not uh, were not so much depression as it was external um, managing the external and also uh, finding a way not to talk to myself uh, for my head to tell me um, that things were worse than they were. Mm -hmm. uh, so for instance, I have um, a lot of my closest friends know that if they, they will never text me just praying for you because that sends me into a, oh no, what's happened. Uh, right. So they will instead say, nothing's going on. I just happen to think of you and am praying for you because they're they're trying to help me with that self-talk. And that's been a, a big challenge for me, I think. Yeah. You talk about your new friendship with uh, Beth Moore, uh, who you, you were asked about often and, and always had to say no relation. Or, yeah. or, or I think there was a joke earlier on that, yes, my mother or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it would, it would put uh, some of the conversation to rest uh, in a joking way. Um, but you, you've described her as you know, being when, when you were going through the thick of it uh, with the SBC, that she was one of those uh, folks that was checking in with you constantly, not just praying for you, praying hands, but like actively, you know, checking in on you constantly. I would have never made it through that time uh, or I can't imagine making it through that time without her. Um, and, and I say, I say made, made it through as though that were past tense. I mean, she's still that way. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I, I look back at some of the things that I said back in, you know, 2006, 2007, um, about, well, I think that, um, Beth Moore's a gateway drug into feminism, <laughs> and, you know, all of these just ridiculous, uh, things and realize that guy didn't know what he was talking about. And, uh, and, and I think I had this idea and I think sometimes people, I think sometimes people do when they see people who are public figures, sometimes there's just an assumption 
Well, that's not a real person, number one. And number two, the fact that they're so public means they must be shallow. Mm. Uh, and, And I think there's an assumption of that. And that was one of the things that I came to see pretty uh, uh, pretty early on in some of the tumult is that it's not just that Beth Moore was there. It's Beth Moore is really, really brilliant and mm. biblically and theologically grounded. Yeah, it's uh, you, you've you've mentioned a few times when. Um... You know, you, you, you look at uh, something that you said earlier. In fact, <laughs> I think it was pretty early in the book you were mentioning. Uh, I, I just made a quick note to myself. You, you had me at Jaber Crow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Jay, you, you're describing Jaber's interaction with one of the fellows uh, from, ta- from that uh, imaginary yeah. town who thought all the, all the commies should be rounded up and shot. And Jaber quotes, right. Jesus, love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Uh, to which Troy, the the fella at the uh, the barber shop, said, "Where'd you get that crap?" <laughs> you know. Yeah. But yeah. you described your own. I I love the way that you were very candid about your own. You know, uh, you you initially thought it was too on the nose or 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 hyperbolic uh, when you first read it twenty years ago, but you don't now. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, I don't now because uh, because at the time I think when I read that, um, there there are some times in Mister Barry's fiction where the nonfiction bleeds through um, and, and so he's kind of starting to preach and then you can see him pull back and uh, go back to the, the fictional world. And I just thought at the time, you know, nobody would actually say that uh, in that way. But in the past several years, I have had pastor after pastor after pastor tell me about that exact scenario. Yeah. In, in which and what surprises me about that is they will they will say something, you know, kind of parenthetical about uh, turn the other cheek. And afterward, they'll have somebody coming up and blasting the turn the other cheek weakness. And when the pastor says, well, you know, this is a direct quotation from Jesus Christ. What's surprising to me is not that the congregant says, oh, uh, I was I was biblically illiterate in that moment or or find a, some way to save face even it's that they say yeah but that yeah. that doesn't work anymore that doesn't work in our time yeah you, yeah. you make that point and and it, it make that starkly in a few different places one i remember and i'm not looking at it um, in front of me so forgive me if I'm, I'm messing it up but at one point you describe the way that some folks see the Roman soldiers who literally put Jesus on the cross as being more of the, you know, more valor in those soldiers than the one who is crucified. Um, yeah. You know, so. It's, yeah. I mean, you, you look at uh, sometimes, I mean, I saw um, not long ago, there was some Christian talking about, we need men who are gladiators and, uh, and, and willing to, and I stopped to say gladiators is, you know, there are some things where you can say, I think that Jesus would be opposed to this. Uh, and you can make an argument. In this case, we directly know. I mean, Jesus told us the Roman way is not the way uh, directly. And it's 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 really a kind of it's it's the temptation we all have. Um, which is to syncretism and to take whatever culture or subculture or sub-subculture we want to conform to and try to find a Jesus who fits with that. I mean, we all have that temptation, and uh, we're seeing a lot of it, I think, right now. Yeah. You know, last time we talked, we talked about, you know, my mentorship with uh, Ravi G, with Ravi Zacharias. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I took from our conversation You said we talked about, you know, one of the thematic verses of the ministry, uh, always be ready to make a a defense for the hope that's within you, the apologia verse, but with gentleness and respect. Um, And you said, but that Ravi, Ravi's failures and his sin doesn't make that any less true or the word any less true. You know, I, I and I was thinking of you as you've gone through these last eight years um, through all that's happened uh, with you, with the SBC, did you ever, uh, I think you put it at one point, get disillusioned with the church or even start to question your your faith? 
No. I mean, well, well, I, I think, yes, I, I became disillusioned in the literal sense of losing some illusions. Uh, I, I still have uh, illusions, but I just don't know what they are. Uh, but I was disillusioned with some things that really were illusory. But I never um, – I never came to the point of of walking away from the faith or from Jesus or from my or from the church. I mean, that that never happened. And the reason it didn't happen is because I had already gone through that as a as a teenager on a small scale. Mm. So if you think about the way that uh, people tell uh, parents and this is my uh, motto all the time with my own uh, teenage sons is that they need manageable crises where you're there to walk them through this is this is how to deal with a disappointment in the job uh, that you didn't get or a girl that doesn't like you back or something like that uh, manageable crises i had a manageable crisis as a teenager when it came to thinking through all of these things and and so then i i think i was prepared. I kind of was immunized to some of that. Now, having said that, uh, if I saw some of the things that I saw over the last several years, at at not just when I was 15, but when I was, you know, 15 years ago, I wouldn't, I don't know that my faith would have survived it. Mm. And as a matter of fact, I I kind of doubt it would have, which is is probably why in the providence of God happened when it did rather than some other time. Yeah. Yeah. You, you I think you deal with that at the conclusion of the book and you, you deal with it pretty, pretty bluntly. I was actually I, I was wondering if you started with that end in mind. I'm, trying, I'm looking for the quote right now. Um, and this isn't a, I'm trying I'm not not giving any way, uh, away any spoilers. It's really a thrust <laughs> of the book. Um, here it is. You, you say the challenge before us is not to make America great again, but to make evangelicalism born again. Maybe, and you go on to say, maybe only when we lose our religion will we be once again amazed by grace. I was wondering if you started with that or some version of that conviction in mind and began like a uh, the the thesis for or a hypothesis that you were working out over the course of the book yeah i mean it it uh, not that exact uh, wording because the this the way i think i i write um i write and am sort of surprised by what i'm writing as i do because it's a, a lot of I've been preparing for things that I'm writing in subconscious ways. That's the mm. best way for me to do it. So, so it's not the wording, but the actual uh, thought. Yes, because the way that I uh, write in just about every book I've written, it's been working through something, um, either with myself or with people that I'm uh, people that I love, and then I'm I'm trying to help. And it's that process of thinking this through. And in this case, it it really was that I was I was looking at I'm looking at a lot of people who are uh, at a point of perhaps losing their faith um, and other people who aren't going to lose their faith, but they're they're downhearted and they're despairing in order to say, you know, I think there are a couple of dangers that we can have. And one of those is the attitude that says, well, don't talk about the bad things, uh, ju just talk about the good things, which leads people to despair because they say, you don't, you're, you're gaslighting me. You're saying I'm not seeing what I'm seeing. Um, and then the other danger is to say, well, I mean, this is the way everything is, just give up. Um, and that's a, that's a I, I've faced both of those temptations. And so it was it was a way of um, it's a way of, of pointing beyond those two things to something that I think is is more biblical. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does? And how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? I'm Simone Leeper, host of Democracy Decoded, a podcast where we examine our government and discuss innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. 
Democracy Decoded is a production of Campaign Legal Center. Find us at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, yeah. I, th- so there was another part at the beginning of the conclusion of the book uh, where you said, uh, and I, I really appreciate how you reckon it's it's a hard exercise to go through to reckon with that, um, you know, with your past and how might this have played out? You say much of what they you were talking about your childhood church told me wasn't true. Much of what they assumed turned out to be just what I feared, a mixture of Southern honor culture, American patriotism, Republican politics, white racial backlash and on and on. Uh, and this this was the kicker. If I don't face that squarely, I cannot be honest with myself or with you, but everything they told me about Jesus was true. I was wondering who, do you have a clear, for lack of a better word, I kind of hate it, but for lack of a better word, do you have an avatar when you're writing? Are you writing for a specific person uh, for, for this book or does it change from chapter to chapter? I don't have somebody that I'm I'm keeping in mind. I I do know that there are some people who write and they have someone that they sort of um either someone they know or some sort of fictional uh person I'm writing this for Dorothy and Dayton or whatever it is. Um I don't do that, but uh but I I do think that I'm I'm attempting to speak to a particular person and and will often say, okay, let me talk about this the way I would if I were sitting down with someone um, and not just at the not just at the surface level, but really, really having a conversation about yeah. these things. That's sort of the way I approach it. You know, and it, it came up throughout as I was reading. Uh, the book, it came up often. Um, I, I want to share with you a little bit. When, when I was growing up, going to shul with my father and my grandfather, there are oftentimes, depending on the service, uh, that it might be my grandfather. He would he would poke me and say, he thought it was a very important prayer for me in particular to hear. Um, or my father during the Yom Kippur service, uh, it was it was always, uh, there was a, a treatment of uh, Ecclesiastes. Um, mm. Uh, in, in that in that service that he would always poke me and, you know, pay attention a little bit more closely. But it's similar to, you know, going to church, uh, you know, you're listening to a sermon is, mm-hmm, yeah, so-and-so yeah. should really be hearing this right now. Yeah. And that was my experience reading the book. I was wondering if, if, if it's, it's almost a challenge. It's like, you know, the people who need to hear this the most, number one, will they read it? And number two, if they read it, will they um, digest it in a way any other way other than oppositional, you know? Well, to- it's, it's, it's really not written to, um, it, to people who are in opposition. Although, I mean, some of them will, will overhear this in, in all sorts of directions. Yeah. Um, but it's mainly written to the people who are not in opposition, but who are tired and um, exhausted and maybe despairing, because I think that's the way through. It's it's not by coming in and saying, okay, let's fix these other people and, and let's get them where they ought to be. It's instead to say, okay, let's find each other and let's support each other and let's uh, let's see what new thing God is creating. Yeah, I think that's the way uh, that's the way through this. So it's really not uh, written to um, persuade uh, someone, uh, you know, a Christian nationalist or something like that. Although I hope it does. Uh, It's it's more uh, for the person who is saying, wait a minute, my my church is has become a, a Christian nationalist place, or um, I, I, I'm dealing with a politicized Thanksgiving table that I don't know what to, to deal with. That's primarily the person it's written to. Yeah, you know, the there's a very subtle form of, I don't know if idolatry, it may be idolatry is too harsh of a term, but uh, very early on when, when I became a Christian, I got involved in a couple of ministries and a good buddy, I, I got caught up in the thinking of, you know, um, perpetuating, continuing the ministry. Oh, it's so important. Yeah. There was an incident where one of the leaders of, of one of the ministries I was involved with um, got involved in a sticky situation. You know, um, it was uh, 
you know, I, I don't need to go into the details, but it was, um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't exemplary of, you know, leaders that as described, you know, as prescribed in, in, in first Timothy and, mm-hmm. and we knew it was sticky, but part of the conversation was, well, what about the ministry? What is mm-hmm. this going to do? We have to keep. And my buddy said to me, dude, God can still be God without your, <laughs> yeah. you know, without your ministry. Yeah. It's okay. So, yeah. so that comes yeah, up. And, and, and I'll tell you, I mean, that we think about that. And I always did just in terms of the struggle of personal idolatry, as you say. Uh, but what I have seen over the past several years is that mentality um, getting even darker than that in ways that really hurt a lot of people because you're, you're able to say, well, we see all of these really, really horrible uh, warning signs in whatever ministry is there, but the ministry, if we if we deal with those things, then the ministry is going to collapse. Um, and I mean, I, I faced that. I mean, there were, there were so many times um, over the past several years where I'm trying to think through, okay, I can't really deal with X or Y because uh, we have missionaries who depend on us. Right. Um, but I mean, ultimately, you have to say, well, missionaries uh, depend on the truth, and we can't advance uh, the truth with a lie. Yeah, and I think so. I think that's kind of always in front of us, and in some way, like everything else, uh, the devil twists things that are good in, in every case. And in this case, there is a there is a really genuinely good impulse to say, let's protect the institution in the sense of let's have the institution uh, do what it's supposed to do. If we think it's important and uh, continue on for somebody else uh, in future generations, that's a good impulse, but it can be really, really weaponized in bad ways. Yeah. No, I remember you referring to some of those or maybe if you if it was you or I it was just what I'd read the accounts of what, the discussions that were happening within the SBC and the ERL, ERLC, especially in that last year or so that you were there. You know, I, I was at the very end of the book um, in the acknowledgments, um, you uh, you were talking about three friends um, and you say I could write a whole book about them. Uh, I was wondering if uh, if you want to take an opportunity to wait. Uh, let me just find my note on it. Um, yeah, sorry, give me give me one second. I just here you go. Uh, so three you you mentioned three people from your team at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission: Philip Bathencourt, Daniel Patterson, and David Prince. Um, and you say a recounting of their courageous leadership and Christ-like conviction would take up a book of its own. So by mm-hmm. way of you uh, beginning work on your next book, <laughs> I was wondering if you wanted to share a little bit about what would be in that book. Well, uh, David Prince uh, was the chairman of my board uh, and is a courageous uh, pastor in Kentucky um, that, that I've known and and loved for over 25 years. Daniel Patterson and Philip Bethencourt uh, were my executive vice president and chief of staff. And then later, Daniel was also executive vice president. Um, and they started with me as interns oh, wow. uh, at Southern Seminary. And um, it was it was one of those things where uh, I kind of had a gut intuition. These are not just really talented and gifted people, but these are centered um, people as as well. They they really have grounding and conviction. And at every stage, that proved to be not just true, but but truer than I thought. And um, and they really, I I would not have uh, I would not have made it through all of that mess if it weren't for those two. And and I say that I wouldn't have made it through the good times if it weren't for those those three. Actually, yeah. 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 You know, on, on the other side of that, in terms of pleasant surprises, I would imagine that since you were an early, you, you were flashing early warning signals about Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, so th- this is now eight years ago. Right. Um, you know, put it, put it in context. I was just realizing this the other day. Um, put it in context. 
eight years is as long as the Beatles were were playing together. And, yeah. You know, it's yeah. a long time. But um, but I would imagine that you've been in rooms with folks and even made friends with with people that you never would have imagined. Oh, completely, who, completely. So yeah. so can, can you share examples of that and what the circumstances were and what surprised you the most? Well, I think that I think that what's happening right now is that there's this upending of all of the old uh, sorts of um, coalitions and alliances and, and and those things are just blowing up, but there are new things that are configuring and they're they're awkward because a lot of times what we want to do is to deal with the old problems instead of the the new problems and not aware. And so in in my case, that's true both in the Christian uh, space and in the, the larger space where there have been people that I previously would have thought this is somebody who has courage, conviction, is going to stand by what he or she thinks is right no matter what. And that tur- turned out not to be true. Mm. And then there have been other people that I I would have uh, – I would have never dreamed uh, would have put – themselves on the line uh, the way that they did with some of these things. And we, I think that sometimes when you've been through the same thing together, there's something really wonderful about being with somebody that you know gets it. Um, There's there's an unspoken, you you don't even have to, to go through it. Um, and I've found a lot of people like that. And I've also found, you know, I, I one of my uh, one of my dearest uh, friends is a uh, very secular, progressive uh, guy uh, who would will often have the same sorts of frustrations on the left with his crazies as I would on the right with mine. And we could have the the same sort of and can have uh, the same sort of venting conversations to one another, because even though they're completely different worlds, they're actually not. I mean, the the same things replicate themselves in various uh, sorts of ways. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, sets of conversations I've had, uh, not just in the last few weeks or months, but in the entire time I've been doing this thing is getting Pete Wayner and John Roush together. Oh yeah. John, <laughs> John is a, I mean, Pete of course is a, is a very uh, close friend of mine and John has become a, a close friend. We get together, a group of us get together every Thursday and uh, John and I were um, in uh, Utah at Brigham Young University talking about religious liberty together a few weeks ago. Uh, and, you know, John is somebody who is a liberal gay atheist uh, who has no connection to evangelical Christianity at all, but who has this deep respect and curiosity um, that if we had more of that, we would we would really we would see a completely different country. Yeah. He was talking about Tim Keller as uh, yeah. restoring his faith and the possibility of faith, you know? Yeah. So um, yeah. very rich conversations across. Um, and it was the way that Yuval uh, Levin uh, yeah. talked about, you know, the way Tim Keller would have conversations with people as if it was a low fence, you know, that you're speaking to a yeah. neighbor and you're just enjoying his company and, and exploring things together. Yeah. Yuval and Tim and I are in a, uh, well, Tim was um, in a book club together uh, that, Sort of, um, it's not really a book club. I mean, it is. <laughs> we we talk about the books, but that's really an excuse. Yeah, to just to get together, together and yeah. to talk about even you know deeper things than just the book, uh, whatever book we're looking at. Uh, but uh, Tim, uh, Tim would always um, would always talk about how striking he found it that Yuval Jewish. Uh, would be on there. We'd be talking about all sorts of Christian things. And Yuval has such a sense of of himself and such a charity that there was there's never a sense of, oh, wait a minute, i'm I'm not uh, I'm not included here. And he said, you know, we could learn so much from that. And it's true. I mean, you could see we would have because uh, we'll have we'll have people 
join us as guests sometimes if they've written something that we're reading. And there were a number of times that there were atheists, and I mean really, really uh, atheist sorts of people. And watching the way that Tim would uh, talk to those people uh, was just incredible because it wasn't just that he was kind and charitable, although he was, and it wasn't just that he knew as much uh, or more than the person he was talking to about the subject. It was that he would actually uh, get to the the point of honest, open proclamation of the gospel uh, in ways that were not forced or cheesy. Or I, I would just I, I told my wife one time I said it's like watching if you're in a place where nobody's ever seen basketball. Uh, and you're watching Michael Jordan and you're saying, I can see what's happening here. I'm not sure if anybody else here can and how yeah. amazing it is. And that's, um, you know, that's that's the sort of thing we need. Yeah. Yeah. I was telling Pete that, uh, boy, I sure would love to be in that uh book club but the uh the, the groucho marks uh you know principle kicks in any club that would have the likes of me as a member i, I become very you know very suspicious of <laughs> well tonight um tonight our gathering is to talk about tim mm. and uh everybody is going to bring uh things we learned from tim and yeah. talk because this is the um when when tim died we sort of uh, went dark for a little while and this is our first time back together and we're gonna yeah. so honor him i was gonna ask you uh because we did have this nice uh john and pete both came back specifically to do a, a tribute because two of the guests that i wrote this list of like dream guests when i first started this program and uh tim keller was on there and michael gerson was on there uh -huh. so um they they tim and pete uh, excuse me uh john and pete had such a gift they came back specifically just to do a tribute to uh tim keller and michael gerson mm -hmm. i wanted to ask you um to if you wanted to uh share a little bit about uh tim. were you friends with michael gerson as well yes and and okay. mike was part of our book club too we lost uh we lost two yeah uh, this year but i wanted to ask you in a very specific way that i i, I suspect tim would appreciate uh, maybe share your thoughts about Tim and, and Mike Gerson, but specifically in such a way that Pete had it all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think Pete did have it, uh, does have it you wrong. You know, I'm kidding about all. that. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, is there, would you share your thoughts? Uh, I mean, we've already been talking about Tim Keller, but um, I'd love for you to to share your, your experience with those two, two fellows and, and uh, what they meant to you. Well, they were very different from each other in in all sorts of ways. Um, Mike Gerson um, was a very earnest um, sort of uh, sort of person, and if you when you first met him, you might think he's he's really serious, um, and he was serious in the sense of gravity, but he wasn't. Um, but he was kind, and he was thoughtful, and he also was. Uh, really committed to spiritual formation uh in himself and in other people um and and had courage i mean he 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 was a brilliant writer now, there's there's nobody that i think can write a speech or a column like mike gerson could but uh he also had this just real commitment to the inner life in ways that i don't think people were able to to see maybe unless they were they were close in and with tim keller i mean this is somebody who had such confidence in the truth of the crucifixion and resurrection of jesus christ that it 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 transformed everything about the way that he related to people about the way he led um, the reason why he wasn't just another typical megachurch uh, evangelical celebrity figure or whatever, um, it it changed everything. And he had it gave him this sense of, um, you know, I, I was in a room one time where somebody was attacking uh, kind of you know, very, very harshly criticizing Tim and me. 
And uh, I was, I could just feel my adrenaline going up and whatever. And I looked over at Tim and he literally shrugged. And because it was, it was something where he was able to say, okay, I, I really do believe this and I'm really confident of where I stand before judgment seat. So, so it doesn't bother me if somebody else thinks that that's awful, you know? Right. That's that's something I, I would like to emulate. Yeah. You know, and it always surprised me thinking that. It, it might require a more liberal theology and even a liberal set of political positions to do what he was able to do, specifically in New York um, and, and some of his other functions. And yet, dude was a serious Calvinist, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's and that's why he was effective. Uh, one of the reasons why he was effective in New York, because he was a genuinely orthodox, small o orthodox uh, Christian yeah. and a, a confessional Christian. And so I think what what Tim conveyed to people is I'm not afraid of you. You're not my ultimate audience which gives me the freedom to be able to speak to you honestly. And I think that there were a lot of people in New York who saw in Tim, even if they completely disagreed with him, they were able to say, okay, well, I know he's not selling me something. He, he, he really is telling me what he believes. And I think that that was the, the part of the uniqueness of Tim Keller. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and uh, to, to go back to Mike Gerson just for a quick second, I would often read his columns in tandem with an E.J. Dion column just to mm-hmm. see two different perspectives. And I thought what they both did so well was they would um, they would articulate the position of the person that they were arguing against um, so well and so faithfully. Um, and it made their own arguments for whatever position they were right or subject that they were writing about that much more. Uh, pointed that much more uh, penetrating and persuasive, you know? Yeah. Um, And, and Mike would do that not only with his own writing, uh, but with other people. I mean, he, he knew how to play devil's advocate um, in a way that what he was trying to do is to get somebody to really honestly portray another uh, position, not just caricature it and engage with it. And it made whoever he was, he was talking to or helping better. Even even if he didn't agree with what they were arguing, their arguments were better. Yeah. American democracy has reached a moment of existential uncertainty with problems bigger than any one administration or headline. My name is James Walner, and I host the podcast Politics in Question with Lee Drutman and Julia Azari. On our show, we discuss how our political institutions are failing us, and we consider different ideas for fixing them. If you like this episode, you might enjoy Politics in Question. You can find that episode and the rest of our show on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and at our website, politicsinquestion.com. Yeah, so speaking of arguments, uh, I do want to get back to the book just uh, before we start to wrap up. In the chapter, Losing Our Identity, um, this is one of the most bold statements uh, in in my, you know, as I was reading it. You said Christian nationalism cannot turn back secularism because it is just another form of it. In fact, it is an even more virulent form of secularism because it pronounces as Christian what cannot stand before you mention the judgment seat of Christ. Christian nationalism cannot save the world. It cannot even save you. Um, So that's a... That's a pretty bold statement. <laughs> well, it's 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 along with a lot of other things, uh, something that would have been um, would have been obvious uh, in in previous times, because what Christian nationalism is doing is saying external conformity uh, is what is Christian. Yeah. If you can get a society to be Christianized, uh, then then you have uh, you have done it. And that is uh, exactly the problem with the old uh, Protestant modernism. It's exactly the problem with the old uh, state church Christendom. Uh, we've seen that over and over again. And if you really believe that what the gospel does is to transform people. Mm. Um, then Christian nationalism is the worst thing 
that not just not just the worst thing for democracy, although it is, and not just the worst thing for for world uh, harmony, although although it's harmful to that too. It's it's harmful to the very definition of the gospel. Yeah, and so that's why uh, when when I'm looking at Christian nationalism, I'm not looking at um, well. This is a form of Christianity that just is too harsh or rigid. It's I'm looking at something that is completely different from Christianity and is mas masquerading as it. And that's what's really dangerous. If somebody hears the gospel and walks away from Christ because they don't want to follow crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended Jesus – they don't want the gospel of forgiveness of sins and union with Christ. Then, okay, that that happens uh, often. But what's even more tragic than that is somebody who is walking away from Jesus because they see something that is the opposite of him, but pretending to be him. Mm. And that's what uh, is is so dangerous about this stuff. Yeah, you mentioned it a couple times where you say a lot of folks are questioning or even walking away from the church, not because they see Jesus and, and you know, read the Sermon on the Mount and, and uh, question uh, the, the truth of that, but they, they question whether the church uh, that they're going to believes it. So yeah. it's a it's a pretty profound point. You know, I wanted to ask you about one other thing. I, I listened to part of an episode of a podcast and it, it was um, the whole episode was meant to criticize your address a few years ago at the Gospel Coalition about how we should treat people who identify as transgender. Um, mm -hmm. And this this fellow played only short segments of your talk and then went on. And as he played these short segments, I said, hmm, that makes sense. It's, it's thoughtful. <laughs> but but then he, he went on to attack, you know, and it was just uh, this certain form of uh, it, it was like this narcissistic, misogynistic venom for you, for transgender folks. Um, and uh, anybody who shows um, empathy, empathy, empathy mm -hmm. was a big trigger word for this fellow. What I was wondering was if you ever try to engage with folks like that, uh, you know, he, I, I won't name the show, but uh, the way he describes his own show is idol smashed, abominations named, the word of God proclaimed and that sort of thing. Um, do, do you ever engage with your cr critics, specifically critics within the church? I don't I don't engage with that sort of. Critic. OK, no, okay. Um, because I don't think that. Um, I, I think usually that sort of trollish uh, kind of engagement, it's not um, it's not worth engaging. And it also isn't helpful to me yeah. to even to even know about, you know, so I don't I don't even look to that. Now, I talk a lot to people who are good faith, um, good faith disagreement uh, with me on something. I mean, that, that happens all the time, but that's an entirely different thing than. Yeah. Yeah. I was so curious, you, you know, I, I love your, um, you were so kind. You, you shared one of my desert Island bookshelves on, on your newsletter uh, a, a few months ago. Um, and I loved that recent conversation. It, we have a lot in common, you know, the Wendell Berry and uh, mm -hmm. Robinson books, uh, you know, and Berry in particular, um, when I was uh, in, I was first introduced to his work in 06, 07, and um, Hannah Coulter, I think was the first one, and Jaber Crow, we, we already mentioned. What was so helpful about those books uh, is he he treats a life. You know, it's yeah. obviously the imaginary circumstances that he's created, this imaginary world that's close enough to home, but the treatment of a life. And it reminded yeah. me, as we were going through some really uh, hard financial struggles in those years, um, that this is, you know, will come out the other side, you know, yeah. and it is possible there's, you know, premature death and stuff like that. But, you know, life, some somehow reading that, it just reminds me that, you know, we'll come out the other side and life will continue to go on, you know? Yeah. And and that's true with Barry. It's true with Marilyn Robinson as well. You, you have um, what would seem to be very ordinary people. Um, and so it's not, it's not the same as a biography of, some conqueror or military hero or whatever, uh, very ordinary people. And it does give you this sort of bird's eye view of a life that does remind you that um, that the storyline of a life is encountering uh, difficulty. And yeah. that, that's part of what it means for life to be gift. I think that's true. I, that's that's also one of the ways that uh, Barry's work and, and Robinson's work has been so so helpful to me. 
How do you read, uh, you also mentioned collections of poems uh, and poetry. How do you read poetry? How do I read it? Yeah, yeah. Is there a certain way that you read it that, you, that, that it's able to, um, what's the word that you've used? Inhabit. Um, inhabit those imaginary worlds or inhabit the, the stories, inhabit the uh, imagery. Um, is there a certain way that you read it to inhabit that work? Oh, no, because um, I mean, I, I know people who are experts enough that they're able to um, to have a kind of template. This is how I'm engaging with the poem. I don't have that. I I read what I like mm. um, and I come back to what I like. And, and sometimes I don't even know why I like it. <laughs> uh, and, and sometimes I don't even know. I mean, I had um, I mean, I know it sounds like I'm in book club all the time, but I had another book club that met uh, all through the pandemic. Um, we, we would have this socially distanced outside meeting around a fire going through very slowly uh, T.S. Eliot's four quartets. Um, and there were so many things hidden in uh, in each of those poems. I mean, I've always loved them and particularly East Coker, but there were all kinds of things I'd never thought about until we were reading it together. Um, and so, so it's not, I don't have some sort of, um, some sort of uh, uh, complicated mechanism for, I, I just read what I like. It's because you have a, a, a palette, I guess, uh, that like an intellectual imaginative palette that's ready to absorb. I have to do it much more methodically actually. And, it reminds me of when I was studying theater when I was in my late teens and early 20s. And Stanislavski has this prescription of, you know, approaching the material. Um, the first read through of a play uh, an actor or director does has to be very, you know, just kind of separate yourself as if you're just the audience taking it in. And then the second read through is much more methodical and you're starting to break down moments um, or in the case of poetry, I'll do something similar where I'll, I'll read it much more mechanically and I'll really try to sit with an image, sit with a phrase um, and really try to um, uh, to process that and understand a picture that. And then by the third time through, I'm able to read it all over again, but with a much greater depth. Uh, the, the collection, I forgot what it's called off the top of my head, Barry's Sabbath poems. I, do, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I did it with that one. Yeah, and I, I think I... I think I do something kind of like that, but not with, not with intentionality or consistency. Um, it, it's, it's more that, uh, because I will skip over any poem that doesn't speak to me uh, in the moment. And that's to my detriment because there are a lot of things that if I really did the work on it, I probably would speak on me, speak to me, but I usually, I usually don't, I, I pay attention to the ones that do. And those are the ones that I come back to uh, a lot. I mean, for instance, I mean, Wendell Berry's Do Not Be Ashamed uh, mm -hmm. it was a has been a really important uh, poem in my life over the last several years because it seemed to put words to something. And I think this is what, at least for me, that's what poetry does, whether it's whether it's actual poetry or or song lyrics, uh, which I think are are. It's the same sort of idea. Uh, they put words to things that you're experiencing, but you don't know how to uh, communicate them. You, you you don't you don't know how to put words to them, and they do that. And yeah. so so the poems that that speak to me uh, the most are the ones that um, are dealing with with certain aspects of life that they're just one just can't find words for so i mean right. when you when you look at four quartets the the meaning of time and uh that those are that's what really speaks to me are those things yeah the great theologians can do that for me as well i think of heschel and and his dealing with time it's yeah. his book on the sabbath actually um yeah. so uh i want to ask you that i call it the tpnr question talk politics and religion question what do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with, have better conversations with, even nurture relationships with people across our differences? So people who think differently than we do, have different beliefs than we do, get their news from different sources than we do. How can we be better at talking politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible? Yeah, and I think the main way that it's possible is for 
for for first of all, for you to have an identity that's bigger than uh, a particular set of arguments. So, you know, for those of us who are Christians, an identity in Christ, we have a um, we have a sense of ourselves such that when we have a disagreement over a set of issues, even really important issues, it's not an existential threat. Mm. And I, I think that that's the, the primary reason that so many uh, arguments turn as as bloody as they do. Um, and the second thing I would is have confidence in what you actually believe. And I'm not talking about those things that you would say. I'm. I mean, there are all kinds of things that I would say. Eh, I I think this, but I'm kind of fifty one forty nine on it, yeah. uh, and I'm not really sure. Dogs in heaven, you know. Those <laughs> sorts of things. Uh, but but there are things where if you have real confidence in what it is that you believe, then you're not in this this sense of uh, siege. Yeah. Uh, when when someone challenges that. And and I think a key part of that, too, is to actually believe that people can be persuaded, um, which doesn't mean oh, we'll we'll double down on trying to persuade them. If you if you know that people can be persuaded and that minds can change, including your own, it it humanizes uh, the conversation uh, in a way that doesn't happen if what you're doing is separating people out into uh, good guys and bad guys. I mean, a, a Christian view of the world uh, says that everybody's both both hero and villain. Uh, right. Everybody's created in the image of God. Everybody's uh, fallen. And so if we know that, uh, then we, we don't have to have this sense of um, I'm on the side of the people who are all good, and they're on the side of the people who are all evil, whoever they are, because then uh, you ultimately start to see that your side is not all good, uh, and and sometimes you see that their side is not all evil, and that can throw people. Yeah. Well, then I don't even know who I am anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. There's there's a few things in there that, that really resonate. One is the possibility that folks can be persuaded, even oneself, uh, leaving open that possibility that I can be persuaded. You know, uh, Monica Guzman, they just had this great um, conference in Gettysburg for the Braver Angels and Moni's, uh, you know, her, her book was I never thought of it that way. You know, having leaving open the possibility that she'll have these into it moments. I never thought of it that way um, because I, I think folks are more uh, ready to be persuaded if they think that they can persuade you on some things. But I think the other side of that, though, and I've I've kind of realized this recently, is that wait, I have to recognize when I'm in a conversation that's not really an, a, a conversation that's defined by um, we're inquisitive and we're curious yeah. uh, as much as interrogation, like interrogation to the point where we can then classify this person and then um, characterize or mischaracterize them in order to demonize them. So mm-hmm. um, just kind of uh, the separating the wheat from the chafe in that way is, is a good. Yeah. Is, and that's and that's kind of why it, it goes back to the question you asked uh, earlier about uh, some uh, podcast um, or what have you. I don't uh, ever do and I get invited to do these things where I want you to debate, <laughs> you know, yeah. about about whatever. I mean, something about atheism or about you know, whatever. Um, I don't ever do that. And the reason for it is because, A, I'm not very good at it. Yeah. Uh, because, B, I don't think it's very productive. Um, I, I think that that sort of thing usually does end up in um, – we're we're grappling to see who's who's best and who's smartest here. For me, if I have an understanding of the way I actually change my mind in in every time that I've ever changed my mind, it has never been because I'm at the end of a a thirty minute uh, argument and I surrender. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's usually this this longer process and usually both in my own life and with a lot of people that I've, I've seen and known, uh, the closer I get to being persuaded of something, the harder I'm going to kick against it. 
for a while. <laughs> uh, you know, and so you have that understanding with other people so that you say, uh, I'm not going to give up on you. And I'm also going to realize that you're you're a complicated person and you're not just whatever your views are. Yeah. Um, neither am I. You yeah. know, and and that that I think often leads to once people can actually uh, say, okay, I don't have to be the representative of my group or right. or my viewpoint. I can sit down and actually talk human being to human being. Um, that's where I think the really productive change happens. Oh yeah, yeah. Some of my favorite conversations I've had in in recent months has been with folks. Uh, pals, acquaintances that are still, you know, big MAGA guys. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it was a longer conversation and a lot of the conversation was about them and, and their life and how they, uh, what happened in their life to arrive at some of the positions that they have. And you're right. It's like this, this guy can't be boiled down to, you know, his gun rack and a, and a bumper sticker that says, let's go, Brandon. He's an right. interesting, you know, at the end of the day, I might disagree with a bunch of things, but um, interesting guy with an interesting life story. And um, we came to enjoy each other. Strange as it may seem, I came to enjoy uh, hanging out with them for a bit. So, yeah. Uh, starting to wrap up here. Any questions for me? You know, I'm really interested. You alluded to it earlier about uh, depression and the, you know the situation that you uh, went through with the MacArthurite uh, kind of um, counsel. I, I wonder what was most help. What has been most helpful for you? Boy, it's been a 15, 16 year journey, um, and uh, I developed a toolkit early on. I, I did try pharmaceuticals, and I just didn't. I had a lot of side effects, but not the desired ones. So mm. over the course of about a year to 18 months, I, I weaned off of the um, uh, the, the pills. And um, I did, did develop uh, several habits. Uh, one was um, I would start, <laughs> this, this might sound corny to, to some folks, especially folks that listen that aren't particularly religious. I would start with scripture. Um, I, I would mm. start my day reading a little, whether it's a chapter or a couple of chapters, um, and uh, whether I was even absorbing it in the morning or not, it was kind of like, okay, get these, get the word in, you know, yeah. uh, it's like, uh, you know, you, you get up and you have some tea or you have breakfast or whatever. I started with some, some, some of the word. I also, um, in addition to that would have, um, I, I'm not a traditional prayer, like get on my knees next to my bed and pray. I, I was never good at that. Maybe it's because I grew up Jewish and we always had structured prayers. So I'm like, what's the prayer, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, but what I, what I did do was I developed a writing habit. So the only, I have a couple of like rules or structures. Um, the one in, in the writing is just a mindset of if I, if anybody, if I'm talking to anyone, I'm talking to God. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I, I feel like even if I'm talking to myself, if there's any entity that knows me even better than that, that I cannot BS with, it's mm -hmm. God. So mm -hmm. I just want to have a conversation with God and allow the possibility that maybe God is 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 speaking to me through the yeah. writing. And it also what it does is the writing slows my thoughts down enough to be able to find articulation or shape to them. Because yeah. um, a lot of times the, especially being um, on both sides of the manic depressive, sometimes the, ma a lot of times the manic parts of the cycle are awesome. Like it's so much mm -hmm. done, you know, mm -hmm. it, it is a little dangerous because, you, you, you know, sometimes there are proclivities that, that dominate, um, that are the themes, if you will, of those manic periods. Um, but, you know, but a lot of times the, the, the exercise is in just slowing it down. Um, yeah. So those were a couple of things. And then reading good material, like, uh, you know, I see you have, uh, I, I'm, I have book envy, your, your library that I see behind you, but like reading great authors, you know, we yeah. mentioned Pete and John, and they've had mm -hmm. recent books that, that have helped me make sense of what the, what in the world is going on. Yeah. Um, as well as, as poetry or, or fic, good fiction, you know, you mentioned Dostoevsky on your bookshelf, you know, just that section uh, where mm -hmm. he's talking to a, a devil type figure, a Satan type figure. Mm -hmm. um, so reading the Bible, writing, reading, um, and believe it or not, uh, about a year and a half ago, oh, exercise, I'll go out for a walk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah. We're about a half mile from horse trail. So just getting out, you know, like I said, just getting my feet on the floor 
um, is, is when I'm in the depressive parts of those cycles, it's hard, man. It's like you're, the air is not air. It's quicksand. Um, yeah. So just get, getting that first step, you know? Yeah. Um, but the, the last thing I'll, um, I'll say is uh, I did discover, I was hesitant to try meditation for a long time because of my theological convictions mm -hmm. um, as a uh, growing up Jewish and now as a Christian. Um, but I discovered it was, it's just breathing. And there's yeah. this, this one particular exercise um, called noting, and you described a version of it. Noting is a thought enters in and you note it and you can sort of name it yeah. like, oh, that's an emotion or that's a negative thought. And then you let it pass, yeah. you know, so that it doesn't occupy you. It doesn't, it isn't you, it's a separate thing. Um, and if you can do that, it, it helps with distraction. It yeah. helps with some of the darkness. So anyway, that's a longer answer to your question, but those are some of the tools that I've developed. That so. makes me think of uh, the poet Malcolm Geit, who did an interview with um, my friend Cherie Harder last year, I think it was. Um, I think this is where he said this. He was talking about a time when he was, he found it very difficult to pray. Um, and he, all he wanted to do was read poetry. Mm. And he said what he started doing was saying, I'm just going to read this poetry to God. And and actually began praying that way, wow. and uh, that really changed the way I I thought about some of those dry periods. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So, how can folks find you online, or more about the podcasts, and uh, find the 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 book is coming out in um, in early August. Well, now July tw July twenty fifth. Oh, oh, great! Oh, that's the day no. before my birthday. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so we'll, yeah. we'll we'll maybe we'll release this episode that week. I, I'll, I'll hold on to it. Uh, I'm sure you'll have a lot of uh, in interviews coming out at that point. But uh, so okay. So how how can folks find you and and all the great work that you're doing? Well, there's the Russell Moore Show. They can listen to the uh, podcast or uh, the Bulletin. Mike Cosper and Nicole Martin and I do every uh, Friday. That's uh, talking about things that are going on in the news uh, at the moment. Um, and uh, my Twitter handle is at PR Moore and my threads handle threads. <laughs> is at Russell Moore. Awesome. That is great. Anything important I forgot to ask you? No, I don't think so. All right. We covered a lot of ground today. Um, so nice to see you. It's, it's Oh, you as well. Such a treat to get to hang out with you a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I hope it's not the last time. Oh, absolutely. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. You bet. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, hit that subscribe button or follow button. Like I said earlier, if you could take the time to leave a review and comments, it really does help. And give me a shout online. I am at Corey S. Nathan on all the socials, even threads. That's Corey with an E and S. and Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion. And uh, Dr. Morrow, appreciate this with gentleness and respect and have a great week. 